Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Saturday, March 2nd, day 148 to the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel-Dan here with our U.S. Bureau Chief, Jacob Magid. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Amanda. Good to be here. We will hear about U.S. plans to airdrop aid into Gaza. We'll learn about a contentious primary in Michigan and what the EU's Middle East peace envoy Sven Koopmans relayed to Jacob this week. All this and much, much more after the break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. For some headlines, the IDF says it struck an area in northern Gaza from which rockets were fired toward southern Israel last night within minutes of the attack. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad claimed responsibility for the rocket fire, which set off sirens in Zikim and Ashkelon's southern industrial zone. The IDF confirmed striking a vehicle in southern Lebanon this morning, targeting operatives belonging to the Iman Hossein Division, an Iranian militia that operates alongside Hezbollah. Family members of those held captive by Hamas are on their final day of leading a unity march for the return of the hostages, which began on Wednesday in Kibbutz Re'im and will conclude this evening in Jerusalem's Paris Square. U.S. President Joe Biden announced on Friday plans to carry out a first U.S. military airdrop of food and supplies into Gaza a day after the reported deaths of dozens of Palestinians in a crowd crush as they rushed an aid convoy. But the question I have, Jacob, is actually, is airdropping really the most efficient way to get aid into Gaza? We saw this past week that some of the aid that was airdropped actually was blown into the sea or blown into Israel. So I wonder why Biden is choosing this tactic. To answer your question, it's it's not the most effective at all, um, given that the main issue is that just the scale of it, the you can fit basically a truckload or two of aid into a military plane that's dropping this aid. And the convoys that the U.S. would like to see go into Gaza every day or in at least 200, winding to get closer to 500 what it was before. Um, So this is really going to be a drop in the bucket, but it looks good. Um, It looks like the U.S. is doing something. Jordan has been doing this for several months now with uh, the U.K. and France as well joining in and even I think Egypt as well. And in the ones that Jordan does, the King Abdullah even participates in them. There's a lot of photos that they put out and footage, and it looks like the Jordanians really care and are doing everything they can 
every every trick in the book to try to get aid into Gaza. Um, and I think there were growing questions about why wasn't the U.S. doing this? If the King of Jordan is getting on a plane and, and dropping aid from the sky, why can't the U.S. do something like this? Um, and I think instead of saying, well, look, it's really not that effective, I think it feels like a little bit that the U.S. in some ways took the bait. Now, I will qualify to say that it's also the drop in the bucket is becoming more substantial because so little aid is getting in over the past few weeks, uh, over uh, even over a month, with basically law and order breaking down in northern Gaza and, and just uh, in growing places. And there's not really the Hamas police who had been securing these convoys are coming under Israeli fire because Israel says they're legitimate targets and those police have stopped securing the convoys. The convoys are barely going through Gaza. So the aid is somewhat getting in, but it's not going anywhere. It's not getting distributed. Um, and there's you've seen all these scenes even before uh, the tragic events on Thursday of just uh, chaos trying to distribute the aid because people are increasingly hungry, it seems, um, given given the, the very dire circumstances in Gaza. So I think given the situation that we have so little aid going in, maybe we've gotta we've gotta think outside the box. I think the US was thinking and, and it became a no brainer to to pull the trigger on this after they've been thinking about it for several days, um, after Thursday's deadly stampede. Um, that this is just something that, that we need to to pursue. And we're also going to look Biden said about a marine corridor, um, having aid come in from the sea and dock maybe in Gaza. Um, possibly being checked through Cyprus. This is something that they've talked about for years um, and has never really happened, I think partially because Israel is um, not so thrilled with the idea, even though it does talk about it, um, but also just because logistically the, the port in Gaza isn't meant to be taking in um, massive amounts of aid. These ships, I think, wouldn't be able to really dock there, given that just like the, the level of the seawater there. And I think it's going to be a real challenge to get that idea off the ground as well, even though you would be able to deliver in much larger scale than than the airdrops. Um, I think the main thing the U.S. is going to be looking to do in, in the few, next few, few weeks is pushing Israel to open more crossings. Um, the air is crossing into northern Gaza, which Israel has been reluctant to to open because it doesn't want that aid that goes in to be used by Hamas to help some to have some sort of resurgence of um, Hamas activity in the northern Gaza Strip. But I think now we're seeing these increasingly dire scenes there. There were more pictures that came out over the past couple of days of children really looking like they're starving, um, given the lack of aid that's been reaching there. And I think the the pressure is probably going to lead to I think Israel to. To open some of either the Eris crossing or the Carney crossing a little bit further south, but but just more access points. But again, you're still going to have this issue of of who's going to distribute the aid, and and the U.S. wasn't even able to answer that yesterday when they when they were asked about well, okay, you drop it from the sky, and then what happens once it lands? Um, and they said, well, we're we're working with aid organizations trying to figure out which one will be the one to distribute, um, but it's not clear yet. Um, and that's obviously the biggest problem right now, the, this issue of distribution. And I think basically what the U.S. thinks. Is that what we the best scenario we can get is try to get a ceasefire or a temporary truce, and then during that time we we've seen and proven that it's much easier to get the aid in because there's no uh, active war zone at the time. So I think they're trying to really hope that by Ramadan, which is around March 10th, we've got another week that maybe by then we can get some sort of deal. There's somewhat some optimism that the administration is in the U.S. is talking about, but it's it's going to be come down to the wire for sure. There's so much needed in Gaza right now. What is the U.S. planning on airdropping to begin with? They're going to start with food. 
Um, that's what they feel that the biggest need right now is, and they're going to be using these MREs, which I didn't know what they were until yesterday, but they're meals ready to eat, which are going to used by the military and going to be dropped from this guy um, in the first coming day, in the coming days, I, I would assume in the beginning of the, the week. Um, and after that, there will be additional airdrops, John Kirby said, the from the White House. And basically, the idea is to learn from each one. They don't expect the first two to go, as well as the third, fourth, and fifth. But it is something that they're planning to sustain for the coming weeks and possibly months. You began uh, talking about this, about the optics, and it sounds like Biden is really aware of his flagging numbers in the polls. And during the vote counting from Tuesday's Michigan primary, over 101,000 people were found to have cast, quote, uncommitted ballots, most of them likely in protest of Biden's Israel-Hamas war policies. First of all, explain to me why Michigan is an especially watched primary. Yes, so Michigan is especially watched because it is a is it a swing? It's a swing state, um, and Biden just managed to de- barely defeat Trump um, four years ago by winning Michigan. I think it, he, it's going to be very, very difficult for Biden to win again in 2024 if he doesn't win Michigan. There are other paths, but Michigan is seen as a key way. And part of the reason he was able to win, I think, was the that he was able to win the Arab American and Muslim American community. When we think of Dearborn and others in the surrounding cities in the Detroit metro area that have these massive Arab and, and Muslim populations, including Palestinian Americans as well. And I think they were willing to support Biden in 2020. And um, the Biden administration's Joe Biden's going to need them again in 2024, or at least that's the thought. So we had against that backdrop, we had this massive protest campaign put together by some of those groups that I just mentioned. And the idea was to have them to have people who are upset about Biden's support for Israel in the war in Gaza to vote uncommitted. Now, this has been something that 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 some of these people have done in the past. It's been a protest um, vote for lots of reasons, but all, including um, Israel policy. And it's been something that's gotten tens of thousands of votes in the past. In 2012, it won 20,000 um, 20, voters hit uncommitted in their ballots. And on Tuesday, we saw over a hundred thousand. So a mass, the most ever, a massive increase from 2012, which is the better example to use because that was the last democratic primary where a president was running as an incumbent. So that at the time it was President Obama or Barack Obama. And, um, that was also a factor then, but, but it obviously didn't hurt his chances in the, in the general that year. And I think that's what Biden is hoping as well. And Biden won 81% of the vote on, on, uh, on Tuesday. And if you think of just comparing it to Trump that day, there's all the focus was on Biden, but, but Trump won less than 70% to Nikki Haley. There's still a large part of the Republican party, which is not comfortable with, with Donald Trump in a state like Michigan. So I think that that was kind of lost in a little bit in the analysis, um, of what happened on Tuesday. But basically you had this massive number so that it was quick to assume, okay, that Biden's in trouble now. 13% of, of Michigan is not really comfortable with his, with his Gaza policies. And he's going to need every one of those percentage points, um, to come to vote for him in November to, in order to defeat Donald Trump. I think though, a lot of, there was a lot of coverage on this point as if that, that yeah, that, that Biden's in trouble. But I think it's a little bit more co- complex than that, that I think you had a combination of, the media 
so a lot of the media covering this, I think, showing a little bit of bias and, and animosity towards Biden's stance on Israel, but also, I think, looking for just an interesting angle to write. If you don't cover this angle, then it's just like an obvious Democratic primary that, of course, the incumbent wins. And yeah, he did win 80 per 1 percent. But if we can find a new angle to make it look like it actually was much closer, I think it's more interesting for people to write about. And I think it seems like a lot a lot of people um, writing about this in the press did take one of those angles. Um, and I think it was unfortunate because while, yes, 100,000 is a massive number and you can't at all ignore it, it's still only talking about 13% when in 2012, even when it was 20,000 voters compared to 100,000 this week, that was 10% um, of the total Democratic primary that voted uncommitted. So 10% on 2012 versus 13% in 2024. Um, and that is not a massive shift. We saw a massive turnout for Biden, um, despite the fact that he was going to win this primary. So I think um, it's a little too early to say what this really means. I think that if there had been maybe 20% of the, that was what the anal- a lot of analysts said, of the of the vote had gone for uncommitted, then I think it would have been really a p- place for Biden to pause and maybe totally shift his policy on Israel if he wanted to keep um his chances alive. But I think with this 13%, it's still in this kind of margin of error place where I think from what I've heard from Biden officials that they plan to continue where they are. They're going to, I think things might change if we don't see some sort of ceasefire soon. Um, but, but for now, I don't think Biden's comfortable just totally shifting his position. He doesn't want to also lose. There's some um, Democratic donors that I saw um, talking to Washington Post who said that he doesn't want to lose his Jewish supporters that that are very um, appreciative of his of his uh, policies in support of Israel during the war, um, and and this would be really seen as a flip flop. So I don't think Biden. I know over the past couple of weeks, U.S. officials have told me that they're not talking about um, conditioning aid to Israel. That's not on the table, even though I'm sure a lot of these uncommitted voters would like to see that. So I think definitely note what happened in Michigan, but I don't think this is going to shift over dramatically in the next few weeks. Um, Biden's strategy regarding regarding Gaza. We'll go to a short break and then discuss the European Union. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. The European Union is planning to host a preparatory peace conference with regional stakeholders in order to advance a two-state solution. The initiative is part of the EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell's 10-point roadmap for Israeli-Palestinian peace, which we talked about when it was leaked to the press in January. Now, Jacob, you spoke with EU Middle East peace envoy Sven Kupmans, who actually seemed to have really, I would say, modest hopes going into this uh, peace conference. So what did he convey to you? Correct. So he was clear that this isn't something that we have scheduled. It's not in the calendar yet. It's something that we're working on. Um, and the reason I think he's smart to be have some of these modest expectations is that the idea is that this is not the kind of large international peace conference that Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has been calling for over the past 
decade, it seems like. Um, basically, this is his idea to help internationalize the conflict, get everyone involved, and have, instead of this older model um, where you just have the U.S. brokering between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, so the EU is trying to take a little bit of a different approach. This First, you have this preparatory peace conference, and because it's lower stakes, if they show up and they don't want to be in the same room, it's not totally a failure. And that's because you have all these other regional stakeholders. I think he's mainly thinking of the EU um, and also the Arab states that are interested in either normal that have normalized ties with Israel and are looking to further broaden those relationships or countries like Saudi Arabia, which the EU has been increasingly working with on this issue, would be offering kind of the incentives that we're talking about of, of its own normalization and having all these countries come together and basically lay the groundwork for when peace, uh, some sort of peace deal is, is um, reached, that they'll have already prepared basically what they're willing to give Israel and the Palestinians in exchange. Um, that They'll obviously normalize ties with Israel, but maybe we can already have up and running free trade agreements, different agree- different cooperation agreements on all the different fields of agriculture, um, science, um, energy, you name water, you name it, and basically trying to incentivize the Israelis and the Palestinians to come together and agree, make make take the risks uh, to to make some sort of two state solution. Um, I think he recognizes the the Sven Kupsman, the EU envoy, that it's still very difficult to do when you don't have Israeli and, and even you have an Israeli government that's very adamant about its lack of interest in a two-state solution and a Palestinian government that's still trying to reform to be prepared to take over Gaza, let alone agree to a two-state solution, um, that we're not there yet. But his feeling is that if you, what we've learned over the past before October 7th and even out and definitely after, he says, is that we can't we can't just sit around and wait, that um, the conflict clearly can't just be managed and that we need to at least pr- prepare the groundwork. Um, and we're going to try to build off of the Abraham Accords, build off the Arab Peace Initiative and, and some of the efforts that we've been working on in the past um, and at least um, show that we're willing to, the, the world is willing to do something and not just wait for the party to be ready themselves. It's really interesting what you're talking about, about making kind of the skeleton for some kind of peace, uh, I don't know, at least a, a feeling of peace when you're talking about science and, and all, all sorts of other kind of initiatives that are completely different from humanitarian aid and war and things of that nature. But the question is, who are they trying to make these agreements with on the Palestinian side? So definitely the Palestinian Authority. I think they see the Palestinian Authority as the the legitimate government representing the Palestinians, and they expect it to be part of representing both Gaza and the West Bank. It was interesting that the envoy made a really major point of like really dismissing this Israeli effort to try to use some sort of clan-based systems in northern Gaza and other places um, in order to get around the Palestinian Authority and 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 Hamas in in Gaza. Um, that's something that the the EU is really not up supportive of, and I think um, it's it's they're hoping to work with the Palestinian Authority, and I think they're they're that's where the international community is at large right now. That the U.S. talks about it as well. The Palestinian Authority is is the address right now, and they're they're planning to they want to see it reformed. They're not uh, denying that, um, but but it, that they don't want to look at it for another address, and they're not necessarily at this point asking for for elections in order for that to happen. Um, the, but the main thing that Sven Kuzmin acknowledged to me is that this this conference might never actually happen. Um, we we do need some sort of buy-in from the, the regional stakeholders as well. And until there's a ceasefire um, and a hostage release, he said that there's there's we recognize that this isn't on the on the cards, but we're still trying to prepare just in case it is. 
Really interesting. Thank you for this update and all others. Jacob. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any comments or questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.